I am the Messiah. Um, so, I want to. I'm very grateful that I got this topic um, because I've learned stuff over the last few days, uh, last week as I've been preparing. Um, I've gone to places that I haven't gone to a long while, for a long time in the, in the Bible. Uh, or not, I've not gone there, but I've looked at it in a different way and seen things that I haven't seen there before. I've been wandering around in, in Kings and Deuteronomy and in Acts and in generally poking my head in the prophets. Um, because really I've never, I've never looked at the topic of um, the expectation of Messiah I look at a lot in my teaching, but never looking at it from the perspective of Samaritans. And because this, this I am statement is given to the Samaritan woman, I was like, oh, I've never actually thought about the Samaritans and Messiah before. So it's actually, I think because of this, this sermon, I'm going to have to change some of my teachings. Um, especially my gospel ones will probably, the PowerPoint will get larger. I think I may have to add a few um, Samaritan slides on there as well. So thank you very much for asking me to do this. You've helped my teaching. So what I'm going to do is just read, you can follow along, it's um, John, John 4, 1 to 26. I'm just going to read it through quickly for you and then talk about it. Yes. Now, when Jesus had learned that the Pharisees had, had heard that Jesus was making baptize, and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. He, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, weird as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it was who was saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water of life that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. 
But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. In this story, um, Jesus has been, well, from the Pharisees and the Sadducees' point of view, stirring trouble in Jerusalem and Judea and gathering more disciples. And the Pharisees are out to get him. And so he leaves Judea and is going to go back to Galilee. And then, but, but he does something very unusual. He walks through Samaria. Um, usually at this time, if a Jew was in Galilee and wanted to go Judea, or a Jew was in Judea and wanted to go Galilee, the quickest route is to go through Samaria. But they wouldn't. They would leave and actually go into Gentile lands, go around and then come back in. Because they didn't want to go through Samaria. Um, because the Jews hated the Samaritans so much, for reasons I'll talk about in a minute. So they would rather walk with Gentiles than with Samaritans. Um, but Jesus decides not to do this. Jesus decides to go straight up from Judea to Galilee and walk through Samaria. So this in, for the start, this is unusual that he would do this. And then he stops by Jacob's well in Samaria. The disciples go off to buy some food and he's there on his own resting. And then he does another unusual thing. He asks a woman, which is probably in the culture unusual in itself, but then he asks a Samaritan woman for a drink, which utterly shocks her that this Jew would talk to her, a Samaritan woman. As the conversation goes on, he offers her living water, a different type of drink than the drink that she could offer him. Her response is, are you greater than Jacob? Are you greater than our father Jacob? Give me this water. And then as the conversation goes on, her past life and her sins are revealed. He never met her before, but suddenly Jesus is telling this woman her life story both her past and her present situation. This, of course, shocks the woman and realizes that he's not talking to a normal human being, a normal man. And he says, you must be a prophet. And so instantly she jumps into a big theological question. She's got a prophet here. She obviously, he knows stuff. So she jumps straight into the question of where you should worship. And there was a big debate in the time the Samaritans believed you should worship God at Mount Gerizim and the Jews, obviously, at Jerusalem. And this, had been, this debate had been going on for centuries, and we'll look at it in a minute. So she instantly says, which is the right one? We say you worship at Gerizim. You Jews say you worship at Jerusalem. Which is the right one? Jesus' response is basically, well, he doesn't put her down, but he does make, make sure she knows, like, you don't know what you're doing. <laughs> we Jews kind of know what we're doing. <laughs> but don't worry about either. Because the time is coming where it won't be, it won't be an important question anymore, where you, whether you worship in this mountain or in this mountain. The time is coming where you're going to worship God in spirit and truth. It doesn't matter where you are. 
And that's what God is seeking. He's not looking after whether you worship in this place or that place. He's actually worshiping, looking for people who will worship him in spirit and truth. I'm not sure whether she's entirely happy with his, his answer, but because she says, well, when the Messiah comes, he'll sort everything out. He'll tell us all the answers. He will reveal all things. He will teach us all things. And then Jesus drops the bombshell. You're talking to him. And that's what I'm doing right now, is revealing all things, both your own personal life and this big theological question you're asking. So this is part of this big story in John. What John is doing is showing, proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, He does this in lots of ways um, throughout the book. People have noticed there's like seven different ways, because John likes seven. And if you have, there's lots of seven signs, there's seven I am statements. If you read Revelation, you can't move for sevens. Um, he likes sevens, and seven, in Jewish perspective, it means completion. So he's the complete witness to Jesus as Messiah. That's why seven is used. Um, John the Baptist is obviously a great witness Jesus himself, his own words, that's what the series we're looking at right now is, his own statements about himself is a witness. The signs, the the particular seven miracles that John chooses to show Jesus' authority as the Messiah. God himself, at different points in the story, testifies that Jesus is the Messiah. The way John uses the Old Testament also points towards Jesus as the Messiah. You have lots of testimonies of others. Like in the next paragraph, this same Samaritan woman is going to go and testify that Jesus is the Messiah. And at certain points in the story also, the Holy Spirit points towards Jesus being the Messiah. So this is one of these stories where it's Jesus' own words and the testimony of the person he's talking to is pointing towards him being the Messiah. But the question that's lying behind this conversation is whose Messiah? Whose Messiah is he? Both the Jews and the Samaritans were expecting the Messiah. But the question is, what kind of Messiah were they waiting for? Were they looking for? And when Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, I am he, who is he? What kind of Messiah is he? Is he the Messiah that she's expecting? Is he the Messiah the Jews are expecting? Or is he a different kind of Messiah that they're both not expecting? So, in order to answer this question, we'll have to have a little bit of a history lesson. I hope you enjoy that. I do. Whenever I talk, I always manage to crowbar some history in there somewhere. Um, So we can have a little history lesson of the history of Messiah and looking at how the differences came about between the Jews and Messiah, uh, Jews and the the Samaritans, and how that has affected their view of who the Messiah was going to be. I'm only picking a few in the story because there's even more, there's loads of, you could have a whole teaching just on the history of all the different messiahs, um, the way the Old Testament points towards the Messiah. So I'm just going to pick a few. The first one I'll pick, because I think it's one of the most significant, 
is the fact right in the garden story, you get the idea that God says that a seed of the woman will crush the serpent. And the serpent has just caused the problem of sin, um, has just caused the problem that the rest of the Bible answers. So right there at the beginning, God is saying that it's a human being is going to solve this problem. Doesn't give you any more details other than the fact that he's going to suffer whilst doing it. But that's it. Just a human being will, will solve the problem of the separation between God and humanity. In Abraham's covenant, God is choosing Abraham and his descendants as the vehicle by which he's going to do this. It's through them. Because part of the covenant is the fact that they are blessed in order to be a blessing. That it's not meant to stay amongst themselves, that Abraham and his descendants are meant to bless the whole world. Abraham means a father of many nations or a father of a multitude. And they were meant to bring all the families of the earth into relationship with God. That was their role. Um, the Torah emphasizes this and gives a lot more detail. So Yahweh reveals himself even more intimately to his people through Moses and the laws that they bring. And Israel was meant to be this priestly nation, this nation that brings the other nations closer to God. And there's a, there's a very interesting part of, the, of Deuteronomy which focuses on the Messiah. It doesn't call it the Messiah, him the Messiah, it calls him the prophet. If you remember when, um, I think it, both in the case of John the Baptist and when Jesus asked the question, who do you say that I am? One of the responses, some people say you are the prophet. And this is from Deuteronomy 18, where it says that God says to Moses, I'm going to raise up another prophet like you, a prophet like Moses, who's going to speak God's, he's going to speak my words to the people, just like you have spoken my words to the people and brought this covenant. Another one like you is going to come up in Israel who will speak my words and bring a covenant. And when he does come around, listen to him. He will tell you everything. Another important stage in this journey is the Davidic covenant. When God makes this personal covenant with David, when David wants to build a temple for God, and God says, no, um, but I'm instead, actually what he says, I want to build you a house, and God says, no, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a dynasty, and I'm going to use you and your son will build me a temple. So David and his sons are going to be Israel's messiahs. Because messiah simply means anointed one. And that was a name first given to the priests, because priests were anointed as part of their ministry. But then later, more, more commonly with the kings, because they were anointed. They, it wasn't such that they were crowned that made them king, it was the anointing that made them king. And so they were the anointed ones. So David was the Messiah and so were his sons. But connected to this covenant is the idea that the son of David will always rule. That the line of David will never fail. The son of David will always rule. And from now on, the house of Yahweh is connected to the house of David. So the presence of God on earth is connected to this family, to David's family. 
We looked at this, if you remember, when we were looking at kings. Because what happened was that one part of Israel embraced this and the other part rejected it. If you remember, we looked at Jeroboam, how Jeroboam and the northern tribes split away from David's line. They rejected David and his sons as king of Israel. And part of that, because the Jerusalem temple was so associated with David and Solomon and that dynasty, they rejected that too as a place of worship. And they returned to this older place where God was worshipped, Bethel. Remember, that's where Jacob met God. And that's where Israel establishes their place um, where God will be worshipped. And Bethel and Mount Gerizim are the same place. Okay, so that's how that comes into the story. But because of this and the other actions of Jeroboam by destroying the priesthood and the festivals, a distortion came into Israel, the northern kingdom, about worshipping God. They worshipped God in the wrong way, and that was, that was why they fell, ultimately. And that is going to also distort their view of the Messiah. But throughout their story, you get the northern prophets actually telling them to go back to David. That their hope, Amos says this at the end, your hope is in the tent of David. Your hope is with David. But they didn't, um, as a whole, some of them did, but they didn't. Samaria fell, the northern tribes were exiled. But what happened was that there was a remnant of the northern Israelites who stayed in the land. And the Assyrians who had defeated them, they brought other people from all the way around their empire and settled them in Israel. So you have a few Israelites left and then all these Gentiles. And they became one people, which we now call the Samaritans. So the Samaritans were half Israelite and half Gentile. And unfortunately, what the Assyrians did was say, okay, you're in a new land, you're in a new place, you have a new religion. So let's find out what the religion of this land is. Which you think this is a perfect opportunity to teach a whole bunch of Gentiles about God. But the religion they choose to teach them is the northern Israelite religion. It's what Jeroboam did, the shrines, the golden calf, the rejection um, of David, um, the rejection of the priesthood, that's what the Samaritans are taught. And so they follow Israel's worship. They still worship at Bethel, at Mount Gerizim. And they reject almost everything associated with Jerusalem, including all of the prophets, because most of the prophets were associated with Jerusalem. So, and all the other writings that are associated with Jerusalem. So for them, their Bible was simply the five books of Moses. All the rest, they rejected. Because all the rest was southern. <laughs> all the rest was connected to David, was connected to Jerusalem, so they rejected it. In the south, um, the southern tribes remained loyal to David and Jerusalem, David's sons continue to be the messiahs. Yahweh is worshipped almost properly in Jerusalem at the temple throughout the history. 
But they too fall. They too are corrupted by the other nations. They too rebel against God. And eventually, um, Jerusalem will fall. But as this process go, comes on, is going on, the prophets are speaking to the southern kingdom about their sins, about coming back to God. And in the midst of this conversation, more little hints come up about this figure that has been talked about, the prophet, the seed, um, more comes in. Um, Micah speaks about the shepherd of Israel, the true shepherd, who will look after his people and lead them back to God. Um, they keep on talking about the son of David, this Davidic king that will come in the future, the son of David, who will lead the people forever. Daniel speaks about the son of man, about, again, this is going to be a human being, but a human being that stands in the presence of God. Isaiah talks about the servant of Yahweh, how the true Israel will suffer and die for Israel and lead them back to God. Eventually, Jerusalem falls, the southern tribes are exiled, but they have a better story, a better finish to their story, because a remnant of them return from exile and come back to Jerusalem. The temple is rebuilt in Jerusalem, God is worshipped there again, and from then on, the Jews believe all of the books of the Old Testament, the Torah and the writings and all the prophets. But they also have a distortion about the Messiah. Um, it's more to do with the things that happen to them after they come back from exile. Um, one of them is actually, because they're so reluctant to break the law again, they become far more legalistic. And this is when the Pharisees are born out of that movement. It started out of a good thing, we don't want to break the law, but in order to break the law, they created more laws um, to protect the law so they didn't break the main law. And that's where the traditions and the Pharisees come up. But also, another problem they had is they were not free. Right the way from exile, apart from like a hundred year gap, all the time they were controlled by foreigners. They were part of other empires. So, you know, the idea grew that the Messiah was about conquering because you had to conquer these Gentile nations to get them to be free. The Messiah was about war. And this was in, underlined even more when the Maccabeans revolted against um, the Macedonian Seleucids. And so these group of righteous Jews come up and defeat these foreigners and kick them out and establish this kingdom. And that becomes the model. That becomes who they think the Messiah is going to be. The Messiah is going to be this great military leader like David was in the past who has defeat Israel's enemies and established this amazing eternal kingdom. So you have two, out of this story, you have two conflicting ideas about who the Messiah is going to be. For the Samaritans, they have a much more simpler picture of the Messiah. For them, the Messiah is from the Torah. So therefore, the Messiah is just like Moses, the prophet. That's who they think the Messiah is. They called him the Taheb, the restorer, the idea that a prophet like Moses would come who would restore Israel. They worshipped in Mount Gerizim. Um, they believed that the Messiah would be like, just like Moses was like God, the Messiah would be like God. So you would see the Messiah, and in a sense you would also see God. 
you would hear the Messiah, in that sense, you would also hear God. And when he came, he is going to tell them all things. They focused on this, on this one line in Deuteronomy, that the Messiah would tell them all things, and this woman then repeats this. That the Messiah is going to come and reveal everything. For the Jews, though, the Jews, the Messiah was much more complex. Yes, he was the prophet, but he was also the son of David, the son of man, the servant, the shepherd of Israel. For them, of course, it's all about worship at Jerusalem. The Messiah is going to come to Jerusalem. He's going to restore Israel to its former glory, and even more, he's going to end foreign occupation, he's going to rise up, raise up an army, defeat the enemies, and then it will also, he's probably going to follow all the things that they've done since, so he will follow traditions. He will be a legalistic warrior messiah. But what the Gospels teach us is what the real picture of the Messiah was. Focusing on the Old Testament, getting rid of those distortions that happen in history, and focusing on what God said the Messiah would be. He was, yes, first and foremost, the king of the Jews. That's who the Messiah was, the king that they were waiting for. But he was also the son of David. He was of David's line. But just like David, he would, he would give Israel its full inheritance. Because what David did was he was the one that fully conquered the promised land. So just like David, the Messiah would give Israel its full inheritance. He was a son of man. This king would be a human being. Yet he would be far different than any other human being before because he would be a human being that stands next to God. He would be a prophet, the prophet. This king would be like Moses. He would speak, reveal God's words to his people and he would bring them a covenant. But he would also be a shepherd. He would care for his flock. He would lead them and guide them. And, but he would also be a servant. And he would ultimately lay down his life for his people. This is the king that was promised that would actually also fulfill Abraham's covenant. He would be one who would fulfill the inheritance that Abraham's children had, and part of that inheritance would be to lead the nations to God, were to bring all families and to unite all in one family. So this is the, this is the, the division, this is the difference between Jews and the Samaritans that the Samaritan woman goes straight to when she realizes who she's speaking to. Jesus is not a normal person. She's a, he's a prophet. So therefore, he goes, she goes straight into this situation. Well, then tell us, which is the right one? Which is the right way? Where should we worship? Is it everything that's connected to Gerizim, or is it everything that's connected to Jerusalem? Which is the right way? Jesus answers, neither. Neither of your distortions... Of your, in neither of this, everything that's happened to distort what I have told, what God has told you in the past, that's not the answer. God is actually doing something bigger than Jerusalem and Gerizim. 
true worship was about spirit and truth. It didn't matter it didn't matter if you were a Jew or a Samaritan or where you worshipped. It was about how you worshipped and who you worshipped. The father was not seeking a particular place. He was not partic- seeking a particular style. He was, he was seeking a particular people that worshipped him in spirit and truth. She says, well, the Messiah will tell us everything. The Messiah will sort it out. And then he says, I who speak to you am he. He has answered her question. The Messiah has revealed everything. In her own life and the big question. He revealed everything there was to know about her, even though they'd never met before. But he's also revealed the answer to the big divide between the Jews and Samaritans. So I find it interesting that Jesus, rather than going straight in and correcting all the Samaritans' faults, rather than saying, well, this is what happened in history. You rejected David, therefore, da 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 He doesn't. He actually goes straight to their perception of the Messiah and says, I am he. I am the prophet who reveals all things. I'm the one you've been waiting for. And actually, it's not about you and the Jews. It's about me and God. Jesus was the Messiah of the Jews, but he's basically saying here, I'm the Samaritan's Messiah too. I'm your king. The Jews and the Samaritans have the same king. Even though the Samaritans and their descendants rejected God's choice, it doesn't matter, they still had the same king. And part of what Jesus is doing, and I think what this conversation with the Samaritan woman is significant, because it's a seed, it's a beginning. It's a beginning that Jesus was doing was actually to unite the two branches of Israel, to make them one again. This is why I went to the prophets, because one of my favorite parts of Ezekiel is Ezekiel 37. Not the famous bit with the dry bones. What happens next? The next vision is about two sticks that become one. And these sticks, one represents Israel, the northern kingdom, and one represents Judah, the southern kingdom. And God says they are going to become one again. And they will have one king. David, my servant. They will have one shepherd. And they will dwell together in the land that I gave Jacob. I find it interesting that this story, this Samaritan's woman, is all about Jacob. And this prophecy actually mentions Jacob, not Abraham or Isaac. Or the others, but Jacob. David will be there, and he will be the prince over Israel forever. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them, with both of them. My dwelling place will be with them. I will be their God. They shall be my, my people, and the nations will see and know. Acts tells us what, how this continues. Um, after the stoning of Stephen in Acts, the Hellenistic Jews are persecuted and they run away from Jerusalem. One of them, Philip, goes to the Samaritans and preaches the gospel. 
And it says, with one accord, they paid attention to what was being said. I don't know if there's any connection between the Samaritan woman, her witness, and what happened a few decades later, or a decade or so later. Actually, not that many years. I always get mixed up with the chronology in Acts. I think it's actually not that many years that these stories are different. Um, I I, I wonder if there's a connection. But it seems that Samaritans listened to what Philip said. And then the apostles find out about this. They're a bit shocked that someone is preaching to the Samaritans. But they go up to see. And when they do, in front of their very eyes, the Holy Spirit falls on the Samaritans exactly the same way as they did to them at Pentecost. Proving without a shadow of doubt that these are part of the kingdom. That these are part of the family. You know, just like in Pentecost... It was the Spirit of God entering his new temple. And in the same way, he's entering another part of his new temple, the Samaritans. They're both part of the temple. So I see this story of Samaritans as this, this, this step of this prophecy. That God always wanted to unite the two branches of his people. Even the remainders of them in the Samaritans, he still wanted to get them back together again. And Jesus begins this process, and then Jesus' body continues it. Because this is who he is. Jesus is the Messiah of the Jews. He's also the Messiah of of the Samaritans. As the rest of the story of Acts shows, he's also the Messiah of the of the Gentiles. We are one because we have one king. That's what the gospel teaches us. Jesus breaks, is breaking this divide between the Jews and the Gentiles, um, between the Jews and the Samaritans, and also between the Jews and the Gentiles. Because the whole idea was to make all of the families of the earth one in him. And this is kind of what Paul talks about in Ephesians. This is, God's, this is how he sums up God's plan. It's the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Yahweh's anointed one uniting all things in himself. The Messiah that unites all things. You can say lots of things about Jesus the Messiah. But I think what this story is showing us is that he is the one that unites all things. If he can unite the Jews and the Samaritans, he can unite anyone with their history. And he thinks so much of the New Testament is actually focusing on the Jew and the Gentile division and how they are made one in Christ. Paul famously says, there's, and he goes beyond that, there is no male, there is no female, there is no slave, there is no master, there's, no, there's just one in Christ. Jesus unites all things. And I think for our, what we can take from that is the fact that we are his body. Um, we are a living symbol that he does that. That he takes people from different parts of society and he makes them one family and one body. We are Christians. 
Christian basically means little Christ. We are little Christ. You could say we are mini messiahs. That's the point. We have little versions of Jesus running around the world. And so in that sense, we have the same role. We have the same task. It's our job to bring unity. It's our job to unite. I think it's so sad when you read history when the church has often been used as a weapon to divide, both within the church, especially within the church, but outside the church too. And I think, unfortunately, we're seeing a lot of that today as well. But that's not who we are, because that's not who Jesus is. Our real, one of our roles is to continue the work of our King, to continue the work of our Messiah, to bring unity, to bring unity within our own church, to bring unity within the churches in Nuneaton, England, UK, Europe, the whole world. That's, we are one family. You know, I think one of the reasons why Jesus is said to be the Prince of Peace is because he brings nations together as one family. That's how he does it. He makes us one. So our task in this is to continue his work. Um, I don't know in our own lives if we have Jews and Samaritans. If we have a situation where we're a Jew and you know someone who's a Samaritan, or the other way around. Um, there's some major division that causes families to divide, or friends to divide, or churches to divide. Um, but again, Jesus doesn't look at the problem that divides them, but looks at the solution. And he is the solution, the one that brings all together. So, let's pray. <laughs> Thank you, God, that you are our King. Jesus, that you are our Messiah. Thank you that you are the one that unites all things in yourself. And I pray that as we look, as we look at our own lives and see how you've done that with our own lives, I pray that you'll help us to continue your work. I pray you'll help us, you will remind us of those times where we have caused division and ask for your forgiveness. Pray you'll help us to see in our own lives where we can heal division, where we can bring unity, where we can be a, a vessel of your unity. Help us as a church to, all, to be united in you. Um, unity doesn't mean we're all the same, but it means we serve the same king. So help us to work together to unite under you. And beyond that, as we look around this world, that, we, that you would help us to be instruments of your peace, instruments of your unity, to continue your role of making all the families of the earth into one, into yourself. Amen. <laughs>